This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your free trial with this amazing service by clicking the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, and Countdown. Baker's story was similar to Joshua Cartwright's, who murdered two sheriff's deputies because, according to his wife, Cartwright was distraught that Barack Obama had been elected president. Cartwright lived in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, just down the road from Mr. Baker. It's a place where right-wing media flourishes. These days, hate crime stories are so similar and so many in number that we begin to tune them out the same way that we might tune out the car sales commercials that scream over our radio and TV airways every day. But the Donnie Bakers and the Joshua Cartwrights of the world are intently listening to the screaming airways, not the screaming that sells automobiles, but the screaming that encourages dull-witted, troubled personalities to commit murder. There's a new book on the market entitled The Eliminationist, How Hate Talk radicalize the American right. It's a book that helps us understand the connections between conservative media messaging and hate crime. Xenophobe, homophobe, demophobe, Obamaphobe, taxphobe, choicephobe, name the fear and you can match it up with some right-wing TV or radio talent pandering to the most terrified simpleton and impressionable minds in his audience. The author of The Eliminationist, David Nywert, says that there's a formula that promotes terminally unsophisticated and disturbed parts of America's right-wing talk audience to do more than just listen to hate messaging. The basic principle behind the formula is to appeal to the most fearful and intellectually challenged portion of a listening audience. Once you get that crowd's attention, the next step is to demonize, dehumanize, and in a sense objectify the hate talker's targets. That then allows the hate talker to more easily characterize the Latino or the liberal or the Muslim or the abortion doctor or even the president of the United States as a traitor or a criminal and an opponent to everything that's righteous and decent. The process is called eliminationism. It's a process that encourages the contempt talker's audience to ridicule, to suppress, and ignore opinions that are different from those of the audience. I interviewed Nywert last week. He had an interesting way of describing eliminationism. He told me that it's the equivalent of allowing a village lunatic to wander around through town square, poking everybody he dislikes in the eye with a sharp stick. His book points out that some villagers have enough sense, they have enough courage and intellect to stop the lunatic. But others don't have enough sense to realize that the lunatic has recruited them and he's actually handed them their own sharp stick. So in the end, a pathetic, impressionable right-wing media convert murders an abortion doctor. And we see that the process of eliminationism was successful one more time. The green eyes, yeah, the spotlight shines upon you. And how could Anybody deny you? I came here with a love, and it feels so much like now I met you. And honey. I could never go on without you. Remember how you were wondering about uh, some of your old classmates and your kids convinced you to go on, uh, what do they call Facebook? 
And then you got friended by that girl you thought was hot in 11th grade, and, and now she seems really into you, you know, and she gets you, not like your wife or her husband or her five kids. And so you guys just end up getting together, and now both your lives are ruined. Well, um, wait, what am I talking about again? Ah, the Internet. You're not the only ones looking to reconnect on the Internet. 43alumni.com is the new website that caters to members of the Bush-Cheney Alumni Association. There, old friends can meet and reconnect and find out what they've been up to and get their stories straight and exchange information about lawyers. <laughs> There's even a section titled, this is true on the website, Setting the Record Straight. Let's click on it. Here's what you get. We were there, and as members of the team, we know the difference between rumor, reality, fact, and fiction. This is our chance to stand up, speak up, and set the record straight. And then that's it. There's nothing else there. <laughs> Can't click on anything. It's just literally that paragraph, and then you're just like, oh, all right. They're as good as building websites as they are building nations. But come on, it's the web. It's the web. Where's the zazz? Where's the sticky apps, the graphics, the music? Throw in a flash game. Dick Cheney's face shooting jamboree. Level three, the faces get smaller. <laughs> Speaking of the administration's OG, Dick Cheney, what's he been up to? Since leaving office, he's spent much of his time defending torture, criticizing diplomatic efforts, and working at a camp for underprivileged children. <laughs> I was lying about one of them. <laughs> Turns out now he's got another project, his memoirs. And it's juicy. This morning's Washington Post reports that Cheney believes President Bush turned away from his advice during their second term, had gone soft, and showed an independence that surprised Cheney. Oh my God, Dad and Mean Dad broke up? <laughs> By the way, how do you uh, both go soft and show independence? Uh, you've gone soft. Nice spine. <laughs> Cheney, tease me more. According to the Washington Post, Cheney, in informal talks about his upcoming memoir, said the statute of limitations has expired on many of his secrets. His memoir is out in 2011. Statute of limitations. How interesting he uses a term most often invoked by defense lawyers and fugitives. <laughs> Meanwhile... Former White House political advisor Karl Rove, a.k.a. the man with a soft-boiled egg for a head, has long insisted that he had little to do with the politically motivated firing of U.S. Attorney David Iglesias in 2006 and was merely passing complaints about Iglesias onto other administration officials, thus his other nickname, Turd Conduit. But now the Justice Department has released 5,400 pages of emails and testimony showing that Rove was far more forceful and involved. Wiggle out of it, Carl. This is the Associated Press. Quote, former White House political advisor Carl Rove was deeply involved in the firing of a U.S. attorney in New Mexico, according to White House emails and transcripts of closed-door testimony released today. And you say what? Anybody can go to Rove.com and read the testimony, and that's not what it said. Another website? <laughs> So your evidence of not doing anything wrong is your own testimony of your innocence. You rest your case. Rove's argument is that he can't recall any emails regarding the firings because he gets so many emails per day that, quote, asking me to remember replies is like asking me to remember a raindrop in a thunderstorm. Yeah, yeah. I dig it. I dig it, Daddy-O. Yeah, baby. You know, man, the nature poetry of Karl Rove really speaks to me, man. Let me, let me let you, what would be a word? A beat, let, let me let you dig another one. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Her name was Valerie Plame. She worked for the CIA. She's Joe Wilson's wife. Boy, that doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> and what of the class space case? The boy who could barely remember his own name, especially under oath. On Sunday, New York Times Magazine checked in with Alberto Gonzalez. And here's what he had to say about not being in touch with President Bush. Quote, have you ever been tempted to pick up the phone and say hi to him? I do, of course, think about our time together. 
And there are times when I think about doing that. But listen, I know that he has his life to live. I've got challenges in my life to live as well. And then he revved the engine on his Camaro and he did a burnout right in front of the president's house. Alberto, pick up the phone and give Bush a call. What's the worst he can do? Hang up on you? <laughs> You'll just forget it the next day. I don't mind. I don't mind if you forget me. Having learned my lesson, I never left an impression on anyone. So now you send me your heart in regards when once you'd send me love. What happened to Congressman uh, Bob Inglis? He's a Republican from South Carolina. He goes to have this event, and the crowd is worked up, and they hate him. And there's an organization called AnybodyButBob.com, because apparently he's a Republican that's not an absolute lunatic. He's trying to talk to these guys, and they keep yelling at him, just like they yell at the Democrats. But you got I watched this whole 10-minute video. I'm going to show you a small part of it here at the end because something interesting happened there. But people would get up and they'd say, oh, you know what? What do you think about vaccines? We don't think it should be mandatory. And Bob Inglis is like, well, vaccines are to help you they, they, so your kids don't get sick. They're like, boo, boo, you're trying to control our lives. And they say, what about, you know, the environment. He said, look, uh, yes, I voted on a law that allows for energy-efficient light bulbs. Boo! Boo! Literally, they're booing him over energy-efficient light bulbs. No, you want, you want to spend more money on your electricity bill? It doesn't make any sense. And whatever he brought up, he said, look, uh, this is not, a, he was saying, even NPR agrees with us because he had heard NPR talking about it. So he's trying to make a Republican point uh, and say, look, it's not even Fox News, it's NPR. And he mentions NPR. Boo! I felt like he was trying to talk to a, you know, a lunatic asylum. <laughs> These guys would just jump up and say nonsensical things, and he kept shaking his head. And they were yelling at him, you work for us, Bob! And look, you want to hold your congressman accountable. That's, that's great. I wish we did a lot more of that in the past, right? But there's a sensible way of doing it, and there's a way of doing it, one, that's disruptive and doesn't help anybody, and two, that makes you look absolutely crazy. So at the end here... He tells them, look, I need you guys to calm down. Don't be so afraid, which I think takes a lot of courage on English's part to say that to a Republican audience because they're frightened. They're frightened out of their minds. You can see it. That's where the anger is coming from. They, they see something slipping away, and they don't know what it is. And then his interaction with them here is absolutely fascinating. I hope you can hear most of this. Clip number four.
Okay, did you hear him? He said, stop following fearful people. Let's look forward. And, and he said, stop being afraid. They're trading on fear when he mentioned Glenn Beck. And then, went, of course, you heard when he said that. They're like, boo, boo, we want to be afraid. Did you hear the guy in the beginning of the tape where he said, we're all afraid of Obama? God, you know, it, the conservative talk show hosts have an amazing way of touching something, you know, ancient in us, if you will, visceral, so, like fear and anger, and they get people riled up. In that same uh, town hall event, people would get up, and the one guy seemed like a rational guy. I was like, oh, finally, someone who's not yelling. And he said, look, you know, uh, Congressman, I want to tell you, everybody I've been talking to is talking about a revolution. We need to start a revolution. And then you see his eyes glaze over. I'm like, what, what revolution? What, why? Why do you want a revolution? What's happening? Here is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Think about it. Okay. And then a woman got up a couple of times, and another one, too. Two different people. The Constitution! They're ripping the Constitution apart. I brought the Constitution. Revolution! But what did Obama do to the Constitution? And where were you guys when Bush and Cheney were raping it? Okay, look, I I'm serious. Point to the po part in the Constitution what that Obama's you know, violating. Because if he is, I'm on your side. I care about the Constitution deeply. Look, Bush, you can argue what he did about the Fifth, the Sixth, the Eighth Amendments, the right to counsel, et cetera, et cetera. You can make some arguments. What you can't argue about is the Fourth Amendment. Okay? He absolutely pummeled the Fourth Amendment unreasonable searches and seizures, and these guys claim that their home is their castle and their domain and they don't want to be messed. He wiretapped all your asses, and he didn't get a court order to do it. Clear violation of the Fourth Amendment, let alone Article 1, which says Congress makes laws. And Bush was like, yeah, Congress makes laws unless I do a signing statement. Well, I don't give a damn what Congress says. I make the law. Okay, and the executive orders, et cetera, et cetera. Where were you guys when we had a real fight about the Constitution? Because it's not about the Constitution. They don't know what the hell's in the Constitution. And they couldn't point to a single problem that Obama's creating with the Constitution. Except in the, some places where he's following Bush's president too much, if you ask me. If, if, then I'd be on their side if they pointed to that. But no, they're just fearful and angry. And they don't know why. And so they, and that is a perfect time for conservative commentators, whether they're on radio or TV or print, to come out and take advantage. Because that's, that's what they live off of, fear and anger. Listen to Yoda. It only leads to suffering. This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. The new weird battle royale between George Bush and Dick Cheney over who gets the less icky legacy rages on. After taking the fight to his former boss in the early rounds, Cheney has been knocked back on his proverbial heels by reports that Bush was protecting America from Cheney the whole time. Got that? Bush protected us from his own administration. That's the argument they're asking us to swallow. The New York Times reports that in 2002, Vice President Dick Cheney argued that U.S. troops should be dispatched to Buffalo, New York to arrest terrorism suspects. Why use the military and not just the police, the FBI, like we normally do? Well, in the words of the Times, the suggestion was Mr. Cheney's strategy for, quote, testing the Constitution. 
Even though active duty troops hadn't been deployed in the U.S. for law enforcement since the Civil War, even though using our own military to arrest Americans on American soil is so blatantly illegal that it causes the Posse Comitatus Act to spontaneously combust in protest, Mr. Cheney argued it would still be worth a try, worth testing it to see how it would work out. According to the Times, quote, several top Bush aides argued firmly against the proposal to use the military and, quote, Mr. Bush ended up ordering the FBI to make the arrests in Lackawanna. Now, the, the case that's being made in the press right now by lots of unnamed former senior Bush officials is not just Dick Cheney as bad guy, Bush as good guy. It's Cheney as bad guy, thankfully constrained by George W. Bush, the noted civil libertarian, equal protection, anti-cronyism defender of the rule of law. The George W. Bush legacy project is in full effect, and its strategy, it seems, is to blame Cheney for all the worst stuff. Joining us now to sort this out is Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Ron Suskind. He's author of the book, most recently, The Way of the World, a story of truth and hope in an age of extremism. Ron, it's great to see you. Thanks it's for being here. It's great to be here. Do you think this is the George W. Bush legacy project at work? Well, it's uh, two projects that head-to-head -head -head in battle, the Cheney legacy project versus the Bush legacy project. Uh, you know, it's really two presidents in competition. It's an extraordinary thing to watch. I mean, it's like the Ali Fraser fight, two champions fighting it out, and it's going to go on for as long as Cheney keeps it going, frankly. Well, Cheney is doing fighting his own battles. Bush has unnamed senior yeah. Bush administration officials fighting it in his name. Let's be very clear here. What happened here was a deniability strategy. Bush and Cheney talked through all the key issues, and then Bush essentially unleashes Cheney. Says, I don't want to know the details. I want to know the top line. And essentially, Bush then becomes deniable if there is an emergency of transparency. Mm -hmm. That's the actual model here, to sever basic issues of accountability that the president uh, is supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, constrained by. But to have Dick Cheney explicitly attacking the president uh, for not uh, pardoning Scooter Libby, uh, other issues like closing Guantanamo, torture regime, why is Cheney overtly attacking Bush now? Cheney thinks he was right and that Bush peeled back some of the extra legal stuff in 2004 and 5 and 6 and Cheney says, I'm right, you're wrong. The legacy of this period, the war on terror era, our era, it's my legacy. I was driving the ship, and my ideas, Mr. President, that's Cheney's view, were the right ideas, and the ones history will affirm is right. So at this point, you've got, I think, open warfare. And a lot of this, you know, Bush is a, a sort of a, the, a propitious constitutional guardian is just, it's absurd. No one's above the rule of law, said Bush. Well, actually, really? actually, Ashcroft was the first one to say it. But, exactly. It yeah. just makes me cough out the word Geneva Conventions. Um, <laughs> what do you make of this reporting about 2000? to specifically, the administration considering sending active duty troops, sending the army into an American suburb to arrest people. What do we know was going on? Well, this is very important here. You know, first off, the, the information, the intelligence was very thin on the Lackawanna group, and there was a lot of debate as to what to do, because these guys were sitting around not doing almost anything, and frankly, much of their engagements looked like summer camp, jihadist summer camp. A.B., what was interesting at this point is Cheney had his eye on the 9-11 one-year anniversary. He wanted a big show, a show of force, a show of resolve, a show of expanded power. And that's part of what I understand was driving Cheney's desire to send troops into downtown Lackawanna. For the political anniversary, for the political reson yeah. politically resonant anniversary, let's Abs test the Constitution, show how much we've changed as a country because of the anniversary. Cheney is a big believer in demonstration models, so-called to shape behavior, to shape expectations, and to shape essentially other people's actions. This was part of that thinking. Now, it's interesting because up in Lackawanna, I talked to the folks in that case, the FBI guys were so conspicuous. Everyone knew the FBI was watching the guys. The guys knew they were being watched. Everyone was sitting doing nothing. And even at the end of the day, there was very little evidence on the Lackawanna group. But Cheney still said this is an opportunity to show our newfound resolve as to the powers of a president.
Playwright Robert Bolt said in A Man for All Seasons, the land is planted thick with laws. If you cut them down to get to the devil, who could stand the wind that would then blow? For our third story in the countdown, former Vice President Dick Cheney, either utterly ignorant of or eager to override our laws and constitution, actually wanted to use the military to arrest Americans in America. In late 2001, Vice President Cheney wanted to send troops into the Buffalo, New York suburb of Lackawanna to arrest a group of six Yemeni American men for allegedly belonging to an Al-Qaeda sleeper cell. So Cheney asked then Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu to create the legal justification to do this. If the president decided to do what Cheney wanted, he'd have to somehow get around not only the pesky Bill of Rights, but also the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 that limited the government's power to use the military for law enforcement. No problem. John Yoo, who created the legal justification for torture when the Bush administration asked him to, crafted a memo saying not only does the president have the right to deploy the military inside the U.S., but also we further believe that the use of such military force generally is consistent with constitutional standards. And here's a nice flourish that it need not follow the exact procedures that govern law enforcement operations. The president ended up using the FBI to arrest the men, but the incident marked the beginning of Mr. Cheney's numerous attempts to trample the Constitution and illegally expand the power of the presidency. Let's bring in Professor of Constitutional Law at George Washington University, Jonathan Turley. Thanks for joining us tonight, Jonathan. Hi, Lawrence. Jonathan, why would Cheney want to go this route instead of just doing it the old-fashioned way, using the FBI to bust these guys, which is exactly what they ended up doing? Well, it's rather transparently an act of opportunism. Many people in the administration, including John Yoo, were known long before 9-11 to hold very extreme views of executive power. And they saw 9-11 as an opportunity. There was no reason uh, to use the military to go after these rather uh, low-grade alleged terrorists. And in fact, that's what they proved to be. They had no difficulty in the FBI arresting them. But putting aside Cheney, what's really surprising is that, you know, we hope as academics, as law professors, that people who are raised within our freedoms and our liberties, our traditions, particularly those who are trained in the law, will be naturally inclined to oppose these ideas. But th this is sort of like a dormant virus that lives within our democracy, that there are people who seem to long for authority, control, even domination. They're the people that tend to cheer at all the wrong times at movies like, you know, V. And, and you know, they're the ones that seem to relish in the idea of executive control. And that's what we have here. It, it, it's a combination of not just ambition, but people who seem to desire a level of control. We came remarkably close to an act that fits every traditional definition of tyranny, the act of an executive power setting aside the Constitution, saying in this memo that the Fourth Amendment wouldn't control, and literally sending active troops into a U.S. city. And that came within one vote. And that one vote was George Bush, who's not exactly people's choice as a defender of civil liberties. Now, if Cheney had won this argument in the White House, and they'd actually done this, sent troops into Lackawanna to make an arrest, what would the legal ramifications have been? Well, you know, Lawrence, you know this very well, that these people um, are rather adept at, at gaming the system. They know if they went into Lackawanna, the courts probably wouldn't stop them or shut them down immediately. What you saw in this period was across the board. This was the same period where they were ramping up the torture issue, where they were ramping up enemy combatant. It was a full court press on the Constitution. They were trying to create an atmosphere, atmosphere of fear in which the American people would give them more power. In 
Congress, in fact, did give them a lot of power. And so the short term is they probably would have gotten away with it. A court would have been reluctant to enjoin them. But in the long term, I think a court would have found that this was unlawful. This argument by John Yoo is laughable, but it's the same type of argument they made in other areas by the president simply declaring someone an enemy combatant, simply declaring his motivations national security. He transcends the Constitution and our laws. That can't be true in a nation committed to the rule of law. Jonathan, let's go back to what you just said about President Bush, the one man standing in the way of this. Doesn't it seem that the hero of this particular episode of Dick Cheney's <laughs> assault on the rule of law was no one other than George W. Bush? Right. I mean, this really, for civil libertarians, is like the final seat of Darth Vader <laughs> saying, you know, take my helmet off, son, you know, I'm with you. Uh, you know, whether he, you know, there's some question of what, why George Bush did this, whether he viewed this as politically uh, too, um, uh, too unpredictable, or whether he did it truly out of constitutional concerns or traditional concerns, or whether he simply didn't want to override the FBI. Uh, what's clear from his history is that George Bush had very little understanding of the limitations of the Constitution. What understanding he did have, he had a very antagonistic relationship to it. Uh, I think that maybe George Bush, the politician, realized that all this stuff was ramping up so fast that he was risking a serious backlash. I mean, consider the fact that in his office at that time, he already knew about these other unlawful programs. And now you have Dick Cheney coming in and saying, why don't we start sending soldiers into cities rolling down the streets? Um, I think that perhaps uh, George Bush realized that that could be a bridge too far. Jesse Ventura is in demand these days on the interview circuit because of his new book, Don't Start the Revolution Without Me. In my interview, he opened the discussion with the topic of torture. He told me he thought he could get Cheney to confess to murder if he could get Cheney on the waterboard for a couple of minutes. It's pretty clear that Ventura feels true repulsion towards people like Cheney and Sean Hannity and all the other war pimps who talk tough but stay clear of real combat. Ventura earned the right to humiliate right-wing talkers because, unlike those talkers, he spent his early years enlisted as a Navy SEAL on active duty in Vietnam. He explained that he experienced waterboarding unlike the war sissies that he criticizes. Given the chance, I'm certain that Ventura could at least get Cheney to come clean over many of the questions people have about the scandals and the criminal activity that developed during the Cheney Watch. You've probably noticed that Cheney has come out of a secluded bunker after hiding for eight years. Think of the number of times when the media was asking, where is Cheney? Like the time he hid in his private bunker after 9-11, or the times no one could find him after Katrina and after he shot his friend in the head during a bird hunt. Cheney's handlers were skillful in keeping Cheney away from the public eye. They recognized that his public approval was just about equal to that of the Taliban. But do we really need to put Cheney in a room with Ventura and a waterboard to figure out why Cheney is everywhere in the media these days, looking like Richard Nixon right before Nixon was busted for Watergate? With every Cheney interview, you expect him to break into one of those Nixon-like speeches where he says, I am not a crook. Cheney wants us to quit asking questions, not just questions about Gitmo. He wants us to stop wondering about his role in domestic spying on journalists and peace activists and political opponents. The one-time reclusive Cheney is urging all of us to stop asking those pesky questions about how he rigged the intelligence process to gin up an unnecessary war in Iraq. According to Cheney, it's inappropriate for Americans to ask about how many billions of dollars disappeared in the Halliburton contract fraud. 
In the last few weeks, Ventura has been in the attack mode, telling Americans that we do need investigations. Ventura's philosophy is that Americans need to kick over the rotting logs left behind by Cheney. According to Ventura, we need to prosecute the creatures that have been hiding under those rotting logs for so long. Ventura's advice is good. Unless we continue to dig deeper, we're never going to know how much damage our democracy sustained. We won't be in a position to make repairs unless we fully explore the wreckage that was left behind by Cheney. A decision to do nothing is going to be an open invitation for tomorrow's Cheneys and Nixons to disable democracy again. If you want to buy a brand new fancy automobile, or if you want to build a place up in Coldwater Canyon, go Constitution says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. It goes on to say that if you are to be searched, the government has to get a warrant based on probable cause. And it has to be specific, quote, particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That's one of my favorites. Who doesn't love the Fourth Amendment? Well, actually, today we have some more detail on that. When the Congress last year decided inexplicably to give the Bush administration legal power to do much of the warrantless searching that they had done illegally anyway, one of the minor comforts in that legislation, that FISA reauthorization, for those who mourned the Fourth Amendment, was the fact that the legislation required the inspectors general of the Pentagon, the Department of Justice, the CIA, the NSA, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to comprehend comprehensively review what the Bush administration did in terms of warrantless wiretapping. That report is in. The public at large got access to the unclassified version of it, and it's sort of a doozy. First, the first legal opinion that tried to pseudo-legally justify the program wasn't issued until weeks after the program started. Second, that legal opinion was issued by the very famous torture memo guy, John Yu, who appears to have been handpicked to write the legal justification for that program even as his boss and everyone else in his department was kept in the dark entirely. Third, Attorney General John Ashcroft appears to have signed off on the program for two and a half years without actually understanding what he was signing off on. The bottom line, we are talking about a very small number of people involved in instituting what appears to be an illegal program without even the barest minimum, minimum attempt to make it seem legal. And that small number of people involved includes the president directly, George W. Bush, and the vice president, Richard Cheney. Meanwhile, in day three of a fight over what the CIA has disclosed to Congress, Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky said that for the first five months of his tenure as CIA director, Leon Panetta was himself kept in the dark about a secret CIA program that had also been kept from Congress, which is illegal. When he found out about the program, Mr. Panetta not only stopped it in its tracks, but disclosed it to Congress immediately, and he has now launched an investigation into how the CIA is running programs without telling even its own leadership, let alone the legislative branch that is supposed to oversee the agency. Joining us now is Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky of Illinois. She chairs the House Intelligence Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Representative Schakowsky, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. CIA Director Leon Panetta has launched an internal probe now at the CIA to determine why Congress wasn't told about this mysterious program that I understand we can't know about in terms of the details because it's classified. You've called for an Intelligence Committee right. investigation. What do you think it will take to actually get to the bottom of this? 
Well, my hope is that on the Intelligence Committee that we're going to take this very seriously. There's really two issues involved. One is the underlying substance of the program that uh, we weren't read into, that Congress was not informed about. But the other is the very serious breach of the, um, I think, uh, breaking the law, the National Security Act of 1947, where they did not tell the, the Congress. It's very clear that for programs like this, it is the obligation of the intelligence community to uh, inform the, the United States Congress. So that program started right after 9-11 in 2001, and it was not until June that they told the director of the CIA. That was the first he heard of it, as you said. And the very next—that that day, he stopped the program, and the next day, he came down to tell us about it. Those are the two things I think we need to look at. Do you, do you think that— elements of the CIA or even of the intelligence community more broadly are deliberately operating outside the chain of command now, that they're deliberately keeping their actions secret? Or do you think that things like this, which you're, which, which you're documenting, which you're saying would be a violation of the National Security Act, do you think that these are oversights or inadvertent mistakes? Absolutely not. This, this we, we know that there was a decision that was made not to tell the Congress. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that we have to look into very carefully, why that decision was made, who made the, the decision not to inform the, the Congress. This was no mistake. They, we, they did not want us to know about this. Do you know who made the decision? We're going to—I can't talk about uh, the, the names that were involved, but um, I think our investigation needs to determine exactly who—what conversations were had uh, and, and who signed off on those decisions. Okay. The report on the um, so-called president surveillance program, uh, obviously we've only seen the unclassified version of it, and what's in the unclassified version is pretty hair-raising. Are you concerned about what the inspectors general found in that report about warrantless wiretapping and these strange um, and very limited efforts to make the program seem legal? Well, what I'm interested in is that it extends beyond the terrorist surveillance pro program, the, the TSP, which we did uh, find out about, mostly first through the newspaper, um, but that there's a presidential surveillance program that goes beyond that, that there are, what I'm looking at the report, other intelligence activities that John Yu wrote the memo about. You know, they, they, they found their guy again, the guy who will say that, well, the president can't be stopped. It's his constitutional right and order to defend the, the, the country. He could basically do anything. He, it was not only the torture memo, but now he was justifying this program. And it is odd, I think, that a deputy assistant attorney general was the only one that at the Office of Legal Counsel that uh, that was read into the, the program at all. His boss, uh, Bybee, said he was surprised, a little disappointed that he hadn't heard about it, that he wasn't uh, it, it consulted on it. Um, and, and, and so they obviously, I think, knew that this is the guy that would justify everything. Now, later on, of course, when a closer look was taken, um, his legal opinion and the contortions that he went to were viewed as inadequate to really justify the continuance of that program. But I'm curious, we haven't seen, I haven't seen the uh, classified version yet. What are those other intelligence activities that constitute the, the president's surveillance program? Also, of course, I'd love to find out what John Yu has to say about this. He, of course, refused to talk to the inspectors general uh, for this report, as did David Addington, as did George Tenet, as did John Ashcroft. It seems like uh, seems like there's a lot more to know, Congresswoman. That's right. There were 200 people who did uh, who were surveyed, but those important players actually would not participate.
the um, enhanced interrogation program that the Bush administration used had come from before. We knew it came from the SEER program, but now we find out a lot more details about the two principal guys who ran it. Uh, they are Jim Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. Uh, they both are doctors. They used to were called Dr. Doc Jessen and Doc Mitchell by the guys who were doing the torture, I mean enhanced interrogation. Uh, and um, we find out a little bit more about them. So were they trained uh, in uh, language skills? Were they trained in Al-Qaeda? Were they trained in interrogation? Were they trained in anything that would be relevant to interrogating these detainees? Of course, the answer is absolutely not. They had no expertise. Uh, their PhD dissertations were on high blood pressure and family therapy. Dr. Jessen over here uh, actually did his dissertation at, about family sculpting, where you would get uh, different, him right there, yes, uh, different family members, and you would sculpt them, and that would tell you what your emotions were about that family member. So you can see his expertise in the field. So why did they pick these two guys? Well, one of the doctors involved said, look, they were going to go until they found some doctors that were going to tell them what they wanted to hear, which is that it's okay to torture people, right? But these guys were perfect because they used to be involved in the SEER program. Now, the SEER program is meant to teach our guys how to, you know, avoid capture, but if they can't avoid capture, how not to break under the harsh interrogations or the torture that uh, uh, opponents might do to them, uh, the people we were uh, uh, fighting against. And this was during the Korean War that we had developed this because this is where we, our soldiers were subjected to Chinese-style interrogation. So as we've told you before, they based it on a document uh, that the Chinese had written. Now we find out a little bit more about it, and we find out that, uh, yes, in fact, uh, the brutal techniques were directly from that enemy pamphlet that showed them how to do slaps, stress positions, sleep deprivation, wall slamming, and waterboarding, all taken from the Chinese communists that were torturing our soldiers with it. Now, everybody else involved in the SEER program said, my God, we were never supposed to use this for interrogation that the United States of America does. You know, we were supposed to use it to understand the torture they were doing. Under no circumstances should we have applied that. We know it's Chinese torture. We know where the document's from. But Doc Jessen and Doc Mitchell did not agree. They thought, fantastic, yes, let's go ahead and use it. And when Cheney found them, he said, God bless your hearts. Now, could they have been motivated by something else? Well, it turns out they were retired, and they needed a little extra money. So Doc Mitchell uh, put together a company called KnowledgeWorks, and uh, he said, you know what, I can teach you guys how to do this interrogation uh, slash torture that we learned from the communists. Would you like that? And would you like to apply that to Al-Qaeda and the detainees that we have? And the uh, American government, led by Dick Cheney in this case, said absolutely. And so they got paid anywhere between a thousand to two thousand dollars a day to torture people and to teach torture to our other CIA agents, etc. And they were the outside contractors who supervised this. Plus, one of them, well, it appears both of them, but certainly Dr. Jessen seemed kind of into it. Now, why do I say that? Uh, because he used to be in charge of supervising other psychologists in the SEER program. He voluntarily changed his position to what would appear to be a lower position, a guy who does the fake interrogations of our troops when we're training them. Everybody found that a little surprising. And then they watched the videotape of him doing it to our soldiers, pretending to be the Chinese torturers. And his colleagues got so concerned about what he was doing that they pulled him aside and said, look, you, they showed him the, his own tapes. They're like, look, you look pretty scary here. It looks like you're out of control. Can you, Jessen, can you bring this thing down? And we have concern here that you're, you're out of hand. The guy wanted to do it. He was itching to do it from day one. How, why else do you volunteer to basically step down in position so that you can act out the role of the torturer? So when Nick Cheney actually needs torturers, he jumps at it. He's like, oh my God, I'm going to make a thousand or two thousand bucks a day. You know what I always wanted to do anyway? These guys fancy themselves survivalists. They go ice uh, rock climbing together, etc. And and they just love this. They uh, ate it up. And well, one of the things they did was they thought, hey, if we can 
you know, get these terrorists in their mind, people that were terrorists, as we found out later, of course, not everybody at Guantanamo Bay was guilty. Uh, we had captured a lot of them that were not in any way attempting to uh, attack us. Now, whether they were in innocent or guilty, we shouldn't have been torturing them in the first place. But their strategy here, Mitchell and Jessen, was, hey, l let's do learned helplessness. This is something that uh, Dr. Marty uh, Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania um, studied early in his life, and he's one of the, why he's one of the most celebrated psychologists in the country. And they went and talked to him about it. And Seligman didn't know that they were going to use this on actual people. He had done the study on dogs, that if you keep shocking them over and over again, they become helpless, and they don't even respond to the shock anymore. So these geniuses thought, hey, we'll try it on human beings. So they go to Zubaida when the program was authorized, and they start doing this to them. And they start doing the stress positions and the wall slamming, uh, the head slaps, etc. And then they waterboard him 83 times until he becomes helpless and he can't respond to anything, and he's just lying there. And they're like, okay, now he's going to give us information. Except, of course, he didn't, because like the dogs, he became helpless, and he didn't respond to a damn thing. And then the higher-ups finally came in, they looked at him, and they said, yeah, it doesn't look like he's going to say anything more. Yeah, because you broke him. You broke him psychologically, mentally, etc., so that he gave you no relevant information. Now, we did get some good information from Zubaida, but we got that from the FBI interrogators, who talked to him ahead of time before the torture began. And now people within the CIA, FBI, every other government organization concede, yes, we got the relevant information before we tortured him, and we got nothing after we tortured him. But after the colossal failure of Abu Zubaydah, and anybody could see that that was a failure, they decided, well, we're having too much fun. We're going to go ahead and do it to everybody anyway. They did it to 27 different guys, these different techniques. And, of course, when they got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, they waterboarded him 183 times, which goes to show you it's masochism. And it's, well, I should say it's sadism, okay? It's, they didn't have any interest in finding it. Did they really think, oh, my God, we didn't find out enough the first 179 times we waterboarded him? We got If we just kick it up to 183, we're going to find out more. Now the guy was already helpless to begin with, and and he gave no further information. That also didn't work. These guys are sadists who did it for a buck. And now Obama administration has stepped in and said we won't be doing this anymore. We're not going to give let outside contractors torture people for money. Okay, and that is exactly what Cheney authorized. And it was sick. By the way, one little footnote to this. They go back and tell uh, Professor Seligman, hey, they used your experiment and you, what you learned about dogs on human beings. And he's like, oh, my God, what have they done? You know what he is best known for now? He's the father of positive psychology. That's what Professor Seligman is. They took the guy who's the father of positive psychology and they used his experiments to torture human beings. These are the sick, twisted people we had in charge of our government. And the one quote that really struck me was that doctor who said they were going to go doctor to doctor until they found the guys who would do it for them. And Jessen and Mitchell were in. They're deplorable and they're sickening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, sit tight for just a second. I actually have some important slash interesting things to talk about, not just, you know, voting a podcast alley and BS like that. But hang tight. I just want to get through this before I forget it. I want to thank a couple of members. Peter G., member number 22, signed up on July 16th, and Thomas K., member number 34, signed up the very first of this month, August 1st. I want to thank both of you very much, uh, members of the show, of course, help support the show uh, they're the reason why we can do the show twice a week instead of just once so by donating as little as five dollars a month although i need to mention that thomas k has gone above and beyond and is donating ten dollars a month to the show but members just by donating as little as five dollars a month keep the show going strong get a warm fuzzy feeling knowing they're helping to support the program and get access to the best of the left raw feed that's where I put all the clips before they go into a show. Uh, you get them as I find them. I put them in the feed, 
and you get the video versions of all of the shows that are on TV or the internet and so forth. So you can actually download the clips as they come and watch them either on your computer, video, iPod, iPhone, that sort of thing. Now, with that out of the way, I actually wanted to talk about something that came up uh, in regards to this, uh, the iTunes campaign. Someone totally well-meaning, totally lovely guy, just trying to support the show, doing his part. He left a five-star review and, uh, and then wrote me an email afterwards saying, hey, I left a five-star review, but I just want to let you know I didn't ask explicitly, I didn't ask the iTunes staff to post the show on the homepage because his concern was that a, a whole flood of reviews like that asking them to, to act and, and put the show on the front page would backfire. That was, that was his concern. And, you know, I don't mean to pick on him at all. You know, he's 100% well-meaning. And I just had a reaction to that email because it seemed so backwards to me to think that, you know, just a, a, a sincere, well-meaning, everyone was polite in their reviews, you know, there was, no, there was no negativity that there should be a backlash about. You know, if, if you're on the staff at the iTunes store and you get a bunch of positive reviews and they're just asking you like, hey, I like the show and I think it belongs on the homepage, to have a, such a negative reaction to that as to punitively deny okay well if if all of you want this then i'll do the opposite you know for, for there to be any kind of a backlash like that i just i found it so surprising and it and it, the very first thing i thought of was well but of course we've been trained to think that that is that's the exact kind of thinking you get by looking up to or supporting or pinning your hopes to democrats because the Democrats, they get out there and they campaign on one thing. They get into office. They move towards what they think is the center. And if they get a little bit of pressure from the right and they say, yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. I'll, I'll come a little bit towards you. Let me show you how reasonable I am. And they get a little bit of pressure from the left. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to stand up to you guys and show you that I'm not in the pockets of the, you know, the far left wing of my party and. So they, they stand up to the people on their left while caving to the people on their right instantly. And what happened very recently was, and I, I really wish I, I remembered which politician it was exactly, but it was with this healthcare debate. And when the left started running ads in his state saying, hey, you're not on our side. You know, we, we thought you were going to be uh, helping us out with healthcare reform but you're not doing it. And he came out and said, if you keep running these ads in my state, then I'm definitely not going to support reform. And it's just, it's so backwards and disgusting that that is kind of the reality of, of how these politicians work and how they think. And I just thought that that event and, uh, and that, a comment on that may have been indicative and and frankly i mean i i know exactly where it's coming from i have that feeling myself a lot of times like uh, whoa, whoa you know if we ask too harshly we'll actually hurt our chances of getting what we want and you know oh if only 80 percent of people want a public option in health care you know that's one thing but if we pressure them too hard, then we're going to assure them, you know, we'll assure ourselves that we won't get what we want. It's absolute madness. But anyways, that actually leads me to another thing I wanted to mention. Weeks ago, and I've done a terrible job at keeping up on this, it just flew under the radar and, and I missed it, uh, or I, I didn't keep up on it. Campaigns intern. I, I just mentioned this once and didn't really do a great job of describing it. But now I have some examples, actually. Um, I would like for this show to start talking about progressive campaigns that are going on in the real world, either ones that we can start or ones that we can add to. 
And a couple of examples would be the a dollar a day till Norm Coleman goes away campaign. That was going on and has since ended. But basically, a campaign had started to raise a dollar a day from as many people as they could get until Norm Coleman dropped out of the Senate race against Al Franken. So it was a great idea. It was like, hey, Norm, you've lost. Everyone knows you've lost. And if you stay in the race longer, the longer you stay in, the more money we're going to raise against you. And basically against future Republican candidates. So it was a great campaign. And I should have talked about it on the show, frankly. And I just, it didn't occur to me. And then just a day or two ago, I heard an interview with Jane Hampshire from FireDogLake.com, very respected liberal blog, or progressive blog, whichever term you prefer. And they have a campaign that has apparently been going for a couple of months all around the health care debate. So in these last couple of days, when the Obama administration and Democrats in general looked like the, the public option was lost. It was like a lost cause. They were, they were sending out signals that it was a lost cause and that they'd basically given in on that point. And then effectively the next day they come back out and said, no, no, no. What are you talking about? Nothing's changed. We're all about the public option. We've always said that it's important and, and that's what we're sticking with. And news is coming out that they really got a backlash from their left side. The people who actually voted for them, people who actually support the Democratic politicians, said, hey, this is not what we put you there for. Grow a spine. Start talking about the public option. That's what we want. And so uh, in this interview with Jane Hampshire, she said, you know, it looks like this just kicked in in the last 24 hours. It's like it just came out of nowhere, but it didn't. This is a campaign that's been going on for a couple of months They've been raising lots of money. They've been generating lots of phone calls and, uh, you know, phone calls to Congress and and so on. And that is something that I just heard about. And frankly, I should have heard about it two months ago when it started. And I should have been talking to you about it for the last two months because you guys are the ones who should be hearing about this sort of thing and joining the battle. So anyways, the idea is a campaign's intern or helper or whatever, whatever you want to call yourself. Uh, I, I, I framed it as an internship. If you wanted uh, you know, a letter of recommendation at the end to go give to, to a, some liberal organization who would be impressed by that sort of thing from a liberal podcast like this. The basic idea is, as all of you know, the, the amount of work that goes into this show takes up so much time. I just, I couldn't possibly also keep up with all the liberal blogs so I need some help with that but it's not for my personal benefit obviously it's just to make the show better so if you are interested you know anyone who's interested pass the word along um, I'm just looking for people or a person who can kind of help me out on that flank and uh, and keep me abreast of these types of campaigns and uh, and help me integrate them into the show among other things and in a variety of ways so anyways that's what i wanted to say about that um hopefully i didn't mislead you when i said i had something uh important slash uh, vaguely interesting to say at the end of the show and uh, that's it for today so to go down the list stay connected with the show on twitter and facebook or by signing up for our email newsletters uh, i always write great emails and try to be funny in them because uh, being funny is the way to keep people interested in what you're doing. So sign up for those. You won't regret it. Um, support the show by leaving reviews in iTunes, voting at Podcast Alley, by uh, filling out the listener survey. Links to all those are on the website. Listen to the show on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com. Visit the show notes on the blog to find the links to all the sources and music used in this episode. So... Coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to our members. Seriously, thanks to all the members from bestoftheleft.com.